In Their Own Words, a collection of Mormon quotations compiled by Mormonism Research Ministries' Bill McKeever is a valuable resource when wanting to know what Mormon leaders have said on a given topic. Pick up your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore or mrm.org. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. And with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. But we also have with us today Sandra Tanner and Dr. Ron Huggins, who is Sandra's biographer. There's a book that's going to be coming out soon titled Lighthouse, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, Despised and Beloved Critics of Mormonism. And we've had Sandra on the show before when she's told us a lot of interesting stories about her family and the research that her and her husband, Gerald, have done over the many years. Gerald unfortunately passed away back in October of 2006. Sandra has been carrying on that ministry. And as I've mentioned before, I think all of us who are involved in ministry to the LDS people are certainly indebted to the research that the Tanners have done. And this book covers a lot of that. In yesterday's show, I had read a portion from the book on page 26 that deals with Brigham Young Jr.'s wife by the name of Abigail. And at the time, he marries Abigail, who becomes Sandra, your great grandmother. Right. She was 17, and Brigham Jr. was 51. Quite a difference in, in the two age groups, which is not uncommon. Now, the book talks about how. After Brigham Young Jr. died and left Abigail a widow, she goes to nursing school. And we are talking about, would the family of Brigham Young kind of step in to help take care of a lot of these plural wives? But Ron, you had mentioned that when Mary Ann Angel lived in the Beehive House, which is where Brigham Young lived, and this is where his office was when he was the territorial governor, as well as the president of the church. Mary Ann ends up getting her own house that was called the White House. And you had mentioned something that I think we should talk about. There was some kind of dispute over the property, and maybe this was why Brigham Young Jr.'s estate couldn't take care of some of these plural wives, including Abigail. What happened actually was that one of Brigham Young Jr.'s uh, plural wives just went ahead and sold his house and left him in financial straits, uh, possibly. I don't know how deep financial straits. But there were, there were other problems be, beyond just an unwillingness to help. I think Brigham Young Jr. probably would have helped Abby if he could because he was really besotted with her. She definitely is one of the younger ones. Any stories about that, Sandra? Well, my grandma, uh, who had married into the Young family, used to tell stories about great-grandma young to me uh, at different times in my life. And I did know Abby Stevens Young. She was alive, clear till I was 13. But my grandma told me that Abby got special treatment from Brigham Jr. and would get better goods given to her by Brigham because she would always rave about how wonderful it was, whatever he brought, 
sometimes he would buy bolts of material and disperse it in his families. And my grandma said, well, yeah, Abby always complimented Brigham Jr. on what he brought over and never complained about it was the wrong color or not a long enough length or whatever. And the other wives would criticize what he brought. And so (laughs) she was very high in Brigham's uh, estimation, and he would give her better things than the others. Of course, at the time, I was not aware of the age disparity that she would have been the youngest wife and the prettiest, a buxom, very good-looking young woman. I never saw pictures of her until Ron started his research. Oh, really? I had only seen old pictures of her. Oh, when she's up in age. When she's in age, yeah, because I've got pictures of her with five generations of the youngs in my family. So we have Abby and then Sylvia, my grandma, and my aunt and her daughter and uh, grandchild. And so I've always just thought of Abby as this old lady. That's what Mm. I knew, just this old lady that lived upstairs in this house on the avenues. And here I see this picture. Oh, my goodness. No wonder Brigham married her. (laughs) She's this beautiful young woman. So, of course, she got better stuff than the other women. (laughs) So you're you're telling us that... It actually had maybe something to do with their youth and their good looks and not just a revelation from God. Is that what you're saying? I I think so. (laughs) Let's let's talk about James Wardle, the barber, because he does play a role in this book. Give us a little background on that, Ron. Who is James Wardle and what kind of role does he play in the Tanners eventually coming out of Mormonism? A huge role. He's, like Sandra once described him, I don't know if it got in the book, uh, before the internet there was James Wardle. He was barber on State Street. He's been called the State Street Socrates, and he had this enormous collection of Mormon books. Anything he got his hands on that was suppressed, he would immediately get it into somebody else's hands, and he would uh, quickly distribute I remember he got one document that had been borrowed by someone from Juanita Brooks who lent it to somebody else, and there was this promise all along the line that nobody would see it, and he got his hands on it, and he spread it, and Juanita calls him and says she's going to sue him, and so there was a flap there. We should mention that Juanita Brooks was the author of the book dealing with the Mountain Meadows Massacre, right. which was really ahead of its time, and I thought put out a lot of very sensitive information that did not flatter the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in any way. No, she's one of the great uh, Mormon historians, uh, very respected, but she and uh, Wardle had a tiff until they discovered that she and Wardle's wife had lived across the fence from each other when they were younger, so then they got along... uh, Wardle was not a member of the LDS Church. He was our LDS. He was our LDS, the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that was started after Brigham Young left with a majority of the saints to Utah. Yes. Now, the way it's recorded in the book on page 38, Gerald meets Mr. Wardle in 1956. But I want to read a paragraph out of page 38 because I think this might have been the attraction that Gerald had to James Wardle. Wardle had a vast collection of books in the back of his shop, which he categorized with the Dewey Decimal System supplemented by the Cutter-Sanborn author numbering system. About half his enormous collection of books and documents related to the historical texts and documents of the various major and minor branches of Mormonism. And then it goes on page 40, and Gerald reads the tract that was given to him by James, 
it's David Whitmer's tract. And it says, as Gerald read Whitmer's tract, he was infuriated with Whitmer for making such outrageous claims against Smith. Quote, I could not believe such a serious charge against the prophet, and I tossed the pamphlet down in disgust. But then, after throwing it down, I began to think that perhaps that was not the right way to face the problem. If David Whitmer was wrong in his criticism of Joseph Smith, surely I could prove him wrong. So I picked up the pamphlet and read it through. And the rest is history, because that pamphlet, an address to all believers in Christ, really changed your lives as far as your belief in Mormonism, didn't it, Sandra? Yes, uh, and a lot of people haven't heard that part of our story to realize that reading David Whitmer's pamphlet was absolutely a change in direction for Gerald, and then consequently for, for me. Having one of the witnesses who we were always trained to revere and believe and to have him telling how Joseph Smith changed his doctrines, changed his revelations, that it was uh, opening a door onto a view of Mormon history that we hadn't imagined was even there. It launched Gerald into his pursuit to get to the bottom of the story. How did Mormonism really start? What was it original in its teaching? Uh, Had Joseph Smith veered off course? Is the Book of Mormon true? And if it is, how much of the rest of it is true? It made Gerald ask all the hard questions that set us on our research. If there's one thing that I glean from that pamphlet, he gives a pretty good description of how the Book of Mormon was translated. And this is where a lot of people go to the seer stone in the hat, because Whitmer talks about that. And that was something that we found until the LDS Church actually admitted to the seer stone in the hat, most Latter-day Saints were not familiar with this story. It's not that it was never talked about. I think it was Russell M. Nelson who gave a talk and mentions the seer stone in the hat way back in 1993, but it wasn't something that is part of the missionary lessons, that's for sure. And of course, a lot of the pictures of Joseph Smith translating the gold plates that allegedly Moroni gave him, he's looking at the plates just with his naked eye, like he's running his fingers across the plate and then reading off the uh, Reformed Egyptian into English to his scribe. But Whitmer talks about that seer stone on the hat. When you read that in the booklet, was that something that was new to you, the seer stone on the hat, or was that something you had heard about? If I had heard about it before reading Whitmer, it would have been through my mother and probably didn't register real strong in my mind at the time. Part of the problem of that impact was I didn't have any understanding of Joseph Smith's involvement in magic. So to me, the stone in the hat had no relationship to the occult. As I looked at the story of the stone in the hat, I thought, well, God could do that. I mean, if he could create the world, he can give a message on the stone. And to me at the time, I thought, well, how is that? any different than him just uh, being given the translation as he's looking at the plates. But, but I didn't have any context for understanding what the stone and using the hat represented. But I saw that the story was different, that the church uh, in their publications was telling the story in a different way than Whitmer. At the very beginning of things, we didn't have the context of Joseph Smith's magic involvement before the plates to realize that this represented a a serious (laughs) problem on the translation process of the Book of Mormon. 
let me get this straight then. James Wardle, a barber. God used a barber in yeah. your story to be able to help you think that Mormonism is not true. That was huge, how God used this man. If Gerald hadn't met James, he probably would have never ended up going back to Independence, Missouri to check out the splinter groups. And we don't know whether he would have met Pauline without James because they were friends. That was Pauline Hancock. Hanco Pauline Hancock, uh, who had come out of the reorganized church and had a little church in Missouri in Independence that believed only the Book of Mormon and nothing else of Mormonism, meeting Pauline set Gerald on a course of seeing Christianity as separate from Mormonism, but still left him holding on to the Book of Mormon. But so much of our journey had its origin in James Wardle's barber shop. We would go down and look and read books in his back office of his barber shop that aided us in our research. So much of the reprints that we did in the early days came from photographing books in James' library. So he was a very important part of our story. And we want to talk a little bit more about that in tomorrow's show. But we are talking to Sandra Tanner and her biographer, Dr. Ronald Huggins. It's a book, Lighthouse, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, Despised and Beloved Critics of Mormonism. You can order your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Ministry website. That's utlm.org. That's utlm.org. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.